0: Uh, Uh, Well, thanks to Peg, because I really appreciate this uh, invitation, Uh, partly because I still find Deloes really difficult to work on, and so this uh, was an excuse for me to sit down and and work through some of the uh, political uh, issues in him, which I'm still not sharing. We've had
1: a little bit of trouble with the microphone, so you have to speak Right right into it.
0: All right, how's that? Is that better? Okay. Um, yeah, I really had to use a mic Hmm? All right, how's that? Better? So I have to talk right into this. Um, so this gives me a chance to work through uh, some of uh, Deleuze's work on politics. So, what I really wanted to do uh, this week is just uh, give a reading of Capitalism and Schizophrenia, which is um, the book I think where Deleuze and Guattari sort of worked out their political uh, philosophy. I realize I've assigned a lot of pages for the uh, readings, because I just took out the chapters that happen to be most focused on the political dimension. And I just want to say a few uh, introductory words about this book, because I think it's a it's a difficult book, but I notice on the back of this thing it says it's a, it uh, does political philosophy in a brilliant, appropriately nutty way. <laughs> um, and I actually think this book is serious from start to finish. It's a very uh, difficult book to read, but uh, there's no metaphors in it. They mean everything literally. Body without organs is literal. Uh, Everything else that they put forward is literal. Uh, Deleuze once wrote in a a review of a book by N. Succeed, this phrase, he says, The real originality of an author is revealed only once we manage to position ourselves within the point of view she herself has invented and from which the work becomes easy to read, leading the reader by the hand. This is the mystery. He says, every truly new work is simple, easy, and joyful. And I think that's something you'd say about the anti-Oedipus. Once you get into it and let it lead you by the hand, it's simple, easy, and joyful. I'm not sure I've gotten there, but uh, I think that's part of what uh, he has in mind. It's also uh, the phrase Deleuze likes to quote from Paul Clay about art, artists and great works of art that the people is missing. In other words, the great works of art have no immediate audience. They produce their own audience by people looking at them, whereas say, films like Rambo 2 and 3, have their audience ready and waiting for them, and they're made for an audience in mind, whereas the great works of art have no audience, and the audience has to be produced through reading the work. And I think anti and Capitalism and Schizophrenia, maybe Deleuze in general, is something like that. It's, it's a work that produces its own audience, and that you, you have to kind of throw yourself into in order to um, understand. So that's a, a first point, and something I want to try to do here. Uh, the second reason this book is difficult is that uh, Deleuze defines philosophy as the creation of concepts. And what he does in this book is just create a whole new set of concepts for thinking through some of the problems in political philosophy, and even define some of those problems uh, in, a, in a new way. So he has concepts like multiplicities, and flows, and codes, and territories, and de and re-territorialization. So part of the challenge is to get, simply get clear on what the concepts are in and of themselves, and how they work and function together. So that's uh, a second challenge. And the third one, uh, the challenge, is that when Deleuze died, uh, Jean-François Lyotard wrote a little uh, obituary in uh, Liberation where he said something like uh, uh, from his point of view Deleuze was like the library of Babel in other words he seemed to have read everything and everyone both in the history of philosophy and contemporary philosophy and he just picked he, and chose things from the people he read and put them together in his own in his own work and there's a line in Antioedipus where he writes this every great doctrine is a combined formation constructed bits and pieces, and I think that's exactly a description of DeLille, so then it's very difficult to sort of see where he's pulling these things from, because he just had the history of philosophy at his fingertips, and when I read him, I have to go back and start reading the history of philosophy that he had at his fingertips, so part of the difficulty in reading him is going back and seeing um, what he's read. So what I want to do today is really just trace out um, a kind of introduction to the basic, what I see the basic problems of, of the book, and then on Wednesday, I want to go through a little more carefully Chapter 3 of Anti-Oedipus and this tripartite division they had between primitive societies, the state, and capitalism. And then on Friday, turn turned to the chapter called The Nomadology in A uh, Thousand Plateaus, which is their solution to some problems they thought were left um, left undone in Anti-Oedipus. Um, so today, I just want to look at three fundamental problems in uh, in capitalism and schizophrenia. The first is the problem of desire. When this book was published in 1968, it was a bit of a bestseller, but that's how people read this book. It was a theory of desire. And on page 29 of the book, they state clearly what they, Deleuze and Guattari, consider to be the fundamental problem of political philosophy, and it's something they quote from Spinoza's Theological Political Treatise. And the question is this, why do humans fight for their servitude as stubbornly as though it were their salvation? and this, they write after this, the astonishing thing is not that some people steal or that others occasionally go out on strike, but rather that all those who are starving do not steal as a regular practice and all who are exploited are not continually out on strike. Why do slaves consent to their slavery or be exploited to their exploitation? The answer, they argue, could be only formulated in terms of a question of desire, so this is why they thought desire was the way to go in this book. The masses supported Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, neither out of ignorance, nor because they were prey to an illusion, nor because they believed their interests were best defended by such dictators. No, and this is a quote from them, the masses were not innocent dupes at a certain point, under a certain set of conditions. They desired fascism. And it is this perversion of the desire of the masses that needs to be accounted for. So that's the first question they ask. How can desire desire its own repression? How can you desire your own repression? Because that's what happens in politics, and yet we desire it. So it's not something simply imposed upon us, it's something we want. Second problem is the question of capitalism, but in particular of these two concepts of flow and code, which dot this book uh, everywhere. Uh, there's a quote from the book as well. The general theory of society, Deleuze says, is a generalized theory of flows. The basic thesis of the book, which you pick up very quickly in reading, is that it is the business of society to code these flows, and that the terrifying nightmare of any society would be a flow that eludes its codes, a decoded or uncoded flow. Now, if you read this, you, you pick up this very quickly, but it's hardly straightforward claim because, to my knowledge, no one in the history of the world has ever said the problem of society is the problem of flows. It has to do with social contract, or questions of legitimation, or what's the best form of the state, or whatever, but no one has ever said the theory of society is a theory of flows. So that's a question I want to look at here. It's where Deleuze is setting out uh, the political problem in his own way. Why is the question of flows the fundamental question of political philosophy? So that's the second point, having to do with, more or less, the interpretation of capitalism. And then the third point, which I uh, probably won't have too much time for, but... Um, have to address is the question of schizophrenia. How does schizophrenia fit into all this? And why are capitalism and schizophrenia uh, linked in the title of the book? So, those are the three problems I want to go through desire, capitalism, or these correlated notions of flow and code, and then the question of schizophrenia. I have a lot to do, so I'm just going like, to fly through. So, first, the question of desire. Um, from a contemporary point of view, this question of desire can be said to concern the relationship between Marx and Freud. Marx and Freud each thought, in their own manner, that our conscious thought is determined by drives and forces that go beyond consciousness, that are unconscious, that we're so used to this word, the unconscious, it's probably better to find uh, something else, although I'm not sure what. For Marx, consciousness is determined by one's class. Wealthy people see the police differently than poor people. For Freud, consciousness is determined by our unconscious drives and impulses, what Freud called the libido. Well, the question of the exact relationship between these two economies, the libidinal economy of Freud, which seems to be something personal, interior, psychic, something that's mine, and the political economy of Marx, which seems social, was a problem for numerous thinkers in the 20th that, uh, that numerous thinkers in the 20th century tried to address, Wilhelm Reich, Marcuse, Norman O'Brien. Um, And you'll note that Freud often used the term economic terms in his own uh, psychoanalytic thinking like the terms of investment. We become invested in people, we become obsessed with people, it's hard to disinvest. There's a kind of economics involved in Freudian thinking. Usually, the relation between these two economies was formulated in terms of something like introjection and projection. As an individual, I introject the interests of my class, my culture, my social milieu, I get socialized. And that comes to determine my consciousness, and by contrast, political economy was seen as a projection you know, of the group, of the individuals that um, compose the group. Deleuze rejects this theory, or this way approaching these uh, two economies outright in anti-Oedipus, and uh, his hypothesis is this, and this is on page 63, the only means, he says, of bypassing the sterile parallelism where we find it between Marx and Freud is by discovering how the affects and drives. Are part of the infrastructure itself. In other words, your drives, your impulses, your affects are part of what Marx called the infrastructure. Or put differently, he says, libidinal economy and political economy are one and the same thing. Your drives are part of the infrastructure. Now, this is what I want to try to uh, talk about here, because I think this notion is derived from Nietzsche in a way more than either of Marx or Freud, because for Nietzsche, the reality of us, of you and I as persons, is that we are a multiplicity of unconscious drives and impulses, drives that are often contradictory among uh, themselves, as a quote from Nietzsche. Within ourselves, we can be egoistic, altruistic, hard-hearted, magnanimous, just, lenient, insincere, can cause pain or give pleasure. This is the source of Nietzsche's notion of perspectivism which does not mean that I have a different perspective on the world than you, but that all of us have a multiplicity of perspectives, given the multiplicity of our drives. So it's not that we, our ego has a different perspective on the world, but that the multiplicity of our drives do. Uh, and this, too, is where we need to develop the notion of the will uh, to power at the level of the drives. Each drive, he says, um, is a kind of lust to rule. Each one has its perspective that it would like to compel all the other drives to accept as a norm. This is why Nietzsche thought the ego, or the I, as an I think, is a fiction. Our ego simply associates itself with whatever drive happens to be dominant or sovereign at a given moment. What do I mean, for instance, when I say, I am trying to stop smoking, even as I'm lighting up another cigarette at the exact same moment? It simply means that my conscious intellect is taking sides and associating itself with a particular drive, a particular impulse, or as Deleuze would say, a particular intensity. It's as if I discover myself within this multiplicity of drives, pick out one of these drives and say, so that's me, (laughs) this drive. But it would make just as much sense to say, occasionally I feel this strange impulse to stop smoking, but happily I manage to combat that drive and pick up a cigarette whenever I want. In other words, instinctively, Nietzsche says, we tend to take our predominant drive and for the moment turn it into the whole of our ego, placing all our weaker drives perspectively farther away, as if those other drives weren't me, but rather something else, something other inside of me, which is precisely what Freud called the it, or the id. It's part of me, but it's just this it that's not associated with my ego. But the reality of the self is nothing other than this multiplicity of drives, this flow of intensive states, within which the ego discovers itself almost as an afterthought, as a residue. So if you have read the beginning of Anti-Oedipus, you will know that this is what Deleuze calls the third synthesis in uh, in chapters 1 and 2, which he calls the conjunctive synthesis of consumption. It is as if the ego consumes these intensive states or drives, which have nonetheless been produced elsewhere by something else. In fact, in the first pages of the book, like literally page one of Antioedipus, Deleuze gives a description of the id in his own language, using the example of the life of an infant child. Deleuze has said elsewhere that the best example of the will to power is found not in the warrior or the blonde beast, but you know, with their will to dominate others, but precisely in a small infant, um, as well as the schizophrenic, which we'll see in a moment, because it's in the infant where this life drives, sort of in its pure state, is most manifest. So what constitutes the life of an infant? It has no conception of its body as an organism. It has no idea of its mother as a separate being from itself. It, too, is a multiplicity of competing drives, a series of intensive states. There's a bright light, and it turns away. A loud, sharp sound and it jumps. It feels like growing volcano of hunger and seeks its mother's breast. It feels the uncomfortableness of having to take a shit and relief when it finally poops. It cries because it feels a rash on its bone. And linked to all these intensive states, there are flows, and this is getting into Glouz's language, flows and the cutting off of flows. When the baby gets hungry, it seeks the breast. But for the baby, the breast is not recognized as part of its mother, but simply as a machine that produces a flow of milk, which satiates its hunger, and the mouth is another machine coupled to this flow of milk, which interrupts that flow. The anus is a machine that produces a flow of shit and gives the baby relief, in the pain in its intestines. This is why Freud spoke of the oral, anal, and genital stages. The infant experiences its mouth, anus, and genitals not as organs of its body, but as machines that produce flows, cut into flows, and interrupt flows, and that have a series of intensive states linked to them. So this is in part what Deleuze means by his famous notion of the body without organs. It's like the surface upon which these various organ machines and their various flows function together but in a non-organic manner, in a way that the infant doesn't conceive of itself yet as an organism. And this is what Deleuze then will call desire. And you have to understand that he's going to use his own concept of desire here in a way differently than we usually think of it, where the term he uses even more often is desiring production. For Deleuze... Desire has nothing to do with consciousness, for things that I consciously desire or want. It is simply another name for the unconscious, for what takes place below the level of consciousness and which consciousness simply records or feels the effects of. That is, everything Freud called the id, the multiplicity of drives, the series of intense, intensive states that the ego simply consumes after the fact, the organ machines of the mouth, anus, and genitals, along with the flows that they produce and cut into. For Deleuze, this is simply what he calls the sub-representative domain of desire. In other words, it's nothing we represent to ourselves. It's something we feel the effects of. He calls it the domain of passive syntheses. So that's the first point. Now, we have to add an immediate caveat to this discussion, because the fact is that drives and impulses never exist in a free or an unbound state. For Nietzsche, and this is again a Nietzschean point, one of the primary functions of what we call morality, is to establish an order or ranking among our various drives. It's a quote from the gay science. Wherever we encounter morality, we also encounter valuations and an order of rank of human impulses. Now one, and now another human impulse and state held first place and was esteemed because, it were, and, sorry, ennobled because it was esteemed so highly. End of quote. So consider any list of impulses. They are almost immediately categorized as virtues and vices. Industrious now is a virtue sloth is a vice, obedience is a virtue, defiance and insubordination are vices, chastity is a virtue, promiscuity a vice, These, these days not smoking is a virtue, smoking is a vice. When Nietzsche inquires into the genealogy of morality, he is inquiring into the conditions of any particular moral ranking of the impulses, why certain impulses are selected for and certain impulses are selected against. So you can imagine a warrior society in which it's not the meek that will inherit the earth, but those who are aggressive and violent. Of course, Nietzsche's complaint was that the value inherent in most moral rankings of the drives was, was, was what he called the herd instinct, that is, the impulses that were selected for were those that serve the instincts of the community, the furtherance of the species, that is, the unegoistic drives such as self-abnegation and self-sacrifice and so on. And so on. More generally, Nietzsche would argue that herd morality is in fact an instinct against life a paradoxical situation in which life turns against life itself. And Nietzsche will pick up this, on this idea, I think, in the second chapter of this book, with his analysis of the paralogisms of desire, which I won't have much time to um, talk about. But there's no distinction between nature and artifice here. It's not as if we could simply remove the mechanisms of morality and somehow allow the drives to exist in a free and liberated state. There is no such state, except perhaps as an idea, almost in the Kantian sense. The impulse toward the herd, toward the community, is itself a drive in competition with other drives. We never leave the domain of the drives. Kant liked to say that we can never get beyond our representations. Nietzsche surmises that we can never get what we can never get beyond is the reality of the drives. But in fact the drives are always arranged and assembled in different ways, in different individuals, in different moralities, which is why Nietzsche insisted that there were a plurality of moralities, and what he found lacking in his time was a kind of uh, comparative study of moralities. So that's a kind of Nietzschean background. When Deleuze says that the drives themselves are economic, that they're, they're already part of what Marx called the infrastructure. He is simply reiterating, I think, in his own manner, Nietzsche's thesis that our drives are always assembled, that is, they are ordered and ranked by morality. Deleuze developed two different concepts to get at this idea, which I'll just mention here. In Anti-Oedipus, he uses the concept of the machine. Your drives and impulses simply become cogs and gears of the social machine in which you find yourself. And that's one of his questions in this book, How is your desire taken up into the social formation in which you find yourself? How are you made part and parcel of the social machine? In A Thousand Plateaus, Deleuze drops the language of machines, and instead uses the concept of the assemblage. It is the social formation that assembles or arranges our drives, that assembles desire. Curiously, it's a frequent critique of Deleuze that he lacks a conception of agency, that the French term for assemblage is agencement, which just means an ordering, and assembling, an arranging of things, and you can see that it's in the word there, the very word agency, which is located then not in individuals, but in the social formation. I think that's exactly why Deleuze chooses that word uh, assemblage, or agencement, uh, to get at what he's uh, talking about here. So one can already see in this discussion that Deleuze rather quickly finds an answer to his question, how and why do people fight for their own servitude, as though it were their salvation? There is a school of economics that sees human beings as rational agents who always seek to maximize their interests. I know Miguel had talked about interest. But Deleuze distinguishes between our interests and our desire, in Deleuze's sense. Someone may have an interest, say, in becoming an academic, and they can pursue that interest in a highly rational manner. So he or she applies to the university, takes courses, writes a thesis, attends conferences, goes to the collegium, goes in the job market in the hopes of securing a job, finding an academic position. But that interest exists only as a possibility, as a possibility only within the context of a particular social formation, Marx would say, our particular capitalist structure. If you are capable of pursuing that interest, in a concerted and rational manner, it is first of all because your drives are determined by the social formation that makes that interest possible. Your drives have been constructed, assembled, and arranged in such a manner that your desire is positively invested in the system that allows you to have this particular interest. So you might say that for Deleuze, Desire is the sufficient reason of interest. Wherever you have a desire, uh, interest, you have to look at the underlying desire. This is why Deleuze then can say that desire as such is always positive. Normally we think of desire as indicating a lack. This is probably one of the best-known themes in Antiochus. If we desire something, it's because we lack it. But this is how Deleuze reconfigures the old concept of desire. What we desire, that is, what our drives are invested in, is a social formation. The social formation in which we find ourselves, lack, appears only at the conscious level of interest, because the social formation, the infrastructure in which we have invested our desire positively, has then secondarily produced an interest in us that we can't fulfill. So lack is always derived from desire, but desire is always positive. It's always a positive investment in the social formation in which we find ourselves. So Deleuze thus distinguishes between what he calls desiring production, which is simply this domain of desire, the drives, flows, intensities, and their processes taken on their own, and what he calls social production, which is precisely the assemblage or machine that organizes our drives. In this sense, social production, by its very nature, can be said to exercise a repression of desiring production. Now, although Deleuze maintains this Freudian term repression, I think it remains a bit of an unfortunate re- uh, term, since it seems to imply that social production is simply a lid that is put on desiring production. of if we take the lid off, we can all live in a liberated manner with all our desires running uh, free. But there's no concept, I think, more foreign to Deleuze than uh, liberation in this sense. When Deleuze says that social production represses... Desiring production, or that a social formation represses desire. He simply means that social production always organizes our drives. We're never in a situation where our drives aren't organized, and so that functions as a kind of repression of desiring production. It selects some drives, it rejects others, it ranks them, says certain ones are better than others, it organizes them, hierarchizes them, causes them to flow in particular ways, in particular channels. Yet Deleuze makes two points about this relation between desiring production and social production. On the one hand, he says they are at the bottom one and the same thing, both in fact and in principle. They're identical in nature. The effective agent throughout is always desire. It is always desire that desires its own repression. It's desire that produces the very social machine that represses desire. In this sense, Deleuze does not uh, find it all difficult theoretically. To answer Spinoza's uh, question, then, how can we desire our servitude? Crudely, the answer is that it is desire itself that wants to be repressed. We all want law and order. We want to have our little circuits uh, that are mapped out for us. We want someone to take us by the hand. We all have that abject desire to be loved. We whimper at not being loved and not being understood enough. We want to be repressed. We want to be taken by the hand. Uh, yet, on the other hand, Deleuze will say, even though desire and production and social production are one and the same thing, they nonetheless have what he calls differing regimes. And the reason here is obvious. Just as Nietzsche said that different moralities rank the drives in different ways, Deleuze will say that different social formations assemble desire in different ways. Even at the bottom, it's always desire that's doing the assembling. So what Deleuze and Victoria attempt to do in the third chapter here of A Thousand Plateaus, uh, sorry, of... Um, Anti-Oedipus, which is the chapter I've assigned for our readings, is simply to set out a typology of different social formations which organize and rank the drives in different ways. The question is, how do they organize desire? The chapter is entitled Savages, Barbarians, and Civilized Men, And although Deleuze never mentions this, that tarpite division is uh, derived from a book written in 1877 by the English anthropologist Lewis Henry Morgan entitled Ancient Society, which I've learned this from Embry, wherever he is, Um, because this is the book both Marx and Engels relied on, Marx when he wrote his book on pre-capitalist economic formations and Engels when he wrote his book on the origin of the family, and I forget the rest of the title. Uh, But this was one of the few books then that was doing uh, anthropological work in so-called primitive societies. And for for Morgan, it was a kind of... um, Um, evolutionary schema. We go from primitives to barbarians to civilized people. Deloitte keeps this title for some reason, although he rejects entirely that kind of evolutionary schema, because what he's going to try to do in this book uh, related to this typology is what he'll call a topology, rather than an evolutionary schema, which moves from primitive to more complex and more civilized. He's going to say each of these types, primitive societies, which is a territorial society, states, which are societies that overcode. Capitalism, which is a society that decodes, in fact, all exist together in our present situation. And when uh, they finished *Antigone*, Deleuze apparently, according to Guattari, immediately started writing that chapter on the nominology that appears in *The Thousand Plateaus*, as if he knew that there was a problem in Anti-Oedipus that they hadn't managed to address correctly, and that they needed a fourth typology to complete what they were trying to do. And that's what I want to do on Friday: is look at how and why they felt the need to add this this notion of the nomadology or or the war machine. But none of these are part of an evolution. The whole point of doing this typology for Deleuze and Guattari is to set out a number of types of social formation, ways in which desire gets organized, in order to say that in reality, in our social formation, we're in a capitalist world, there's still states, there's still territorial uh, regimes that exist here and there, and there are war machines that function here and there, and they all coexist and function together. So the point of getting at this typology is simply for us, uh, contemporary people, to have a set of concepts uh, that we can use to disentangle the dimensions of our contemporary situation. So that's uh, partly where um, we want to go. But Deleuze makes a second point, then, uh, still on this relation between desire and production and uh, social production. Even though desire is always assembled and organized in concrete and determinate ways, which is social production, one can always ask, what is thereby being assembled? In other words, what desiring production is on its own terms, before it gets taken up into a particular social formation? Even though, strictly speaking, they're one and the same thing, there's an identity in nature. Uh, And this is the second question, then, one has to ask, how can one think of desiring production in itself? How can one think of the nature of desire in itself before it gets taken up in a social formation? And I don't want to say too much about this, but here's one way not to speak of desire for Deleuze and Guattari, and that's psychoanalysis, (laughs) hence the title, Anti-Oedipus. If Deleuze and Guattari called their book Anti-Oedipus, it's because, despite his greatness, Freud's error, in the end, despite his greatness of discovering the libido as this kind of pure, pure force of production, Um, was to have confined his analysis of desire to the family, to the Oedipal complex of what they like to call Daddy, Mommy, and Me. From Freud's point of view, your desire is formed first and foremost in your family, in your relationship with your mother and father. And if desire then invests the social sphere or the political realm, it's only afterwards as a result of sublimation or what he called desexualization. So if you go to therapy, you want to talk about your mother and father, first of all, and not talk about anything going on in the social sphere. And this is exactly what Delores and Guattari reject when they say that libidinal economy and social economy are one and the same thing. They're saying that the investment of your libido in politics or in society does not come afterward, after you grow up and sublimate your desires and then can enter culture and politics, They are one and the same thing from the start. Desire, sexuality, invests the social field, the political realm, from day one, even in the life of the smallest infant. So that's not a good way of getting at desire. Then the question is, what's the best way of approaching this notion of desiring production if it's not through psychoanalysis, not through Freud or Lacan? And their answer is going to be, and it's given in the title, it's through schizophrenia. (laughs) So we're going to take, the most severe pathological uh, uh, cases and use that as their way of thinking about the nature of the unconscious. Because it's famous that neither Freud nor Lacan thought psychoanalysis could say much about uh, schizophrenics. Why? Because they mistake words for things. So they're not subject to the talking cure, they just use words and throw them around as if they're things, but they don't have any meaning for them, and they just seem to have a, an unconscious that was either too fluid or too viscous for psychoanalysis to take hold of them. And for uh, Deleuze and guattari they say, that's exactly what we need, <laughs> like someone whose ego seems to be shattered the most. And, and, uh, so I want to return to this at the end, but that's, um, that's why they uh, um, turn to um, <coughs> schizophrenia. Uh, and last point on this, it's easy to see why Deleuze wants to keep desire and production separated from social production. Because if desire is what is assembled in the social formation, if desire desires its own repression, it is also desire that can undermine or blow apart the social formation. And this is a quote from page 118, which I'll read, and that'll end this section. Quote, If desire is repressed, it is because every position of desire, no matter how small, is capable of calling into question the established order of a society. No society can tolerate a position of real desire without its structures of exploitation, servitude, and hierarchy being compromised. It is therefore of vital importance for a society to repress desire, to organize desire, and even to find something more efficient than repression, so that repression, hierarchy, exploitation, and servitude are themselves desired." It is quite troublesome to have to say such rudimentary things, but desire does not threaten a society because it is a desire to sleep with the mother. Desire threatens a society because it is revolutionary. So if they want to keep de- desire and production separate from social production, it's because of the, when at one and the same time, desire, desires it's, its own repression, that's what it does. We want to be led by the hand, we want to be repressed, we want to be organized, we want to have our little circuits, and yet it's that same desire that is the agent for any possible revolution or undoing of the social machine that represses the very desire that has produced it. So it's at once the agent of critique and the agent of uh, creation. Um, So end of that section. Now I want to raise one more issue before I finish this uh, quick discussion of desire, and that's this question. How exactly, then, are are our drives repressed? How is desire taken up into a social machine? And Deleuze's curious answer to this question is summarized in this word, inscription, (laughs) or what he calls a recording process. So a process of inscription or recording, that humans and their organs are made into the cogs and gears of the social machine. This is another uh, way of describing what Deleuze means by coding. Our desire gets coded. And here again, I'm going to appeal to Nietzsche in The Genealogy of Morals in the second essay, where Nietzsche famously asked the question, how does one breed an animal with a right to, to make promises? For Nietzsche, Culture is a matter of giving humans habits, of making them obey laws, of training them, training their drives. Just as Berkson showed that all habits are arbitrary, but the habit of taking on habits is not arbitrary. So Nietzsche argues that although every historical law is arbitrary and contingent, what is not contingent and arbitrary is the law of obeying laws. To obey a law, no matter what its content, means that a certain active force is being exerted upon humans and given the task of training them. But then Nietzsche asks, what does culture train humans for? And his response is famous, it trains humans to make a commitment to the future. It makes them form the capacity to make promises, to assume the responsibility for the debt. And for Nietzsche, it is debt and indebtedness, the creditor-debtor relation that lies at the heart of the concept of justice. It is in the creditor-debtor relation, writes Nietzsche, that one person first, first encountered another person, that one person first measured himself against another. Promises were given, debts were incurred, and the justice of the laws existed in order to make one responsible for one's promises and debts to create a memory for the future. So that's a problem Nietzsche lays out. The question is this, how does culture achieve this aim? And Nietzsche's answer was this, that in principle, culture does not ever recoil from any kind of violence. Culture is not a great conversation. It's not a system of exchange and communication. It is immense, an immense system of cruelty. And this is a famous quote from the second essay. Perhaps, indeed, there is nothing more fearful and uncanny in the whole prehistory of man than his nemno his techniques for producing a memory in people. If something is to stay in the memory, it must be burned in. Only that which never ceases to hurt stays in the memory. This is the main clause of the oldest, unhappily, the most enduring psychology on earth. Man could never do without blood, torture, and sacrifices when he felt the need to create a memory for himself. So how do you force people to pay their debts? to each other, whether they're monetary or otherwise, to have a memory for the future, you have to burn it in (laughs) through pain. Pain becomes the medium of justice. So in primitive cultures, Deleuze will say, this memnotechnics of culture were inscribed, as the word inscription comes in, directly onto the body. Tattooing, scarifying, circumcising, mutilating, piercing, excising, incising, carving, encircling, initiating, all of these constituted so many teaks through technique, sorry, to which a person ceased to be a mere biological organism and entered into the selective activity of culture. That's why Jewish males were circumcised, why boys in the newer tribe were scarified on their forehead, and so on. It is as if it were a writing that took place directly on the body, directly on the organs, and turn them into the cogs and machines of the uh, social machine. As Deleuze and Guattari put it in Anti-Oedipus, society is not first of all a milieu for exchange, where the essential would be to circulate or cause to circulate, but rather a socius of inscription, where the essential thing is to mark and to be marked. It's through being inscribed directly on your body, (laughs) at least in primitive societies, that humans were taken up into the social machine. And there's an interesting passage just on page 189 in Anti-Oedipus where they cite an anthropologist talking about uh, a fertility ritual where young girls have uh, ideograms inscribed on their stomach where he says, the young women are never taught the meaning of the ideograms during their initiation. The sign acts solely through its inscription on the body. So it's not important even to know what the meaning of these marks are. The importance is that they are made on the body. They have an efficacy just by being uh, put into the body. In short, Deleuze says, culture made use of pain and not money as a medium of exchange, as a currency, as an equivalent. It turned pain into an exact equivalent of a forgetting, of an injury caused, of a promise not kept, of a debt not paid. In relation to this means, culture is called justice, and the means itself is called punishment. Injury caused equals pain to be suffered. That's Nietzsche's uh, summary. This, this sort of terrible equation of debt that determines the relationship of man to man. Nietzsche's genius was to oppose in this most rigorous form this question concerning the relation of pain with justice. How can one pay back with suffering? Why do we punish people when they steal from me or kill someone, and I want to inflict pain upon them? Like, why does that give me satisfaction for the loss I've incurred? I don't necessarily get. What's been stolen from me back? If they killed someone, I don't get the person back. Why does the infliction of pain on the other person satisfy me? How can a criminal's pain serve as a compensation to the harm that he has done me? And according to Nietzsche, this question can only be answered if we understood uh, if a third term is introduced, and he says something we don't like to admit or think about, it. namely, it's the pleasure which I feel in inflicting the pain or contemplating that pain being opposed upon someone else. This is what Nietzsche calls the evaluating eye, which extracts from the pain it is contemplating, from the spectacle of the punishment, a kind of surplus value. A surplus value that compensates the victim for the broken alliance that the criminal has wronged, for the mark that has not until now obviously sufficiently penetrated his body or sufficiently etched itself upon his memory. So we just turn the screw a little bit more <laughs> and exert a little more pain, so that they become taken up even more securely into the social machine. So pain becomes the medium of justice, and inscription becomes the way in which we are taken up into the social machine. Of course, things have changed since primitive times. Inscription has taken on different forms in states and in capitalism. If we now tattoo and scarify our bodies, it's for different reasons. So this is a quick summary of some of the things to listen to I do in that third chapter in the archaic state. They say inscription no longer takes place directly on the body, instead writing it's no longer aligned on the body, but it's aligned to the voice, to phonetics, in other words, to language. In the state, everything becomes written, not directly in bodies, but it becomes written in language. Legislation, bureaucracy, accounting, the collection of taxes, historiography, they said everything is written out in language. Society no longer inscribes our body, state instead, instead our identity is inscribed in something like an identity card or a passport that you... That I carry with you and that we all still have, although Deleuze says that's kind of an archaism. Because in capitalism, he says, things change again. What gets inscribed in capitalism is no longer bodies, nor are things necessarily written out in language. What gets inscribed in capitalism is capital itself. Capital cares only about two things with regard to you, and two things only. The rest does not matter. Either your labor or your capital. <laughs> the rest is it's completely cynical about. You can believe what you want, you can tattoo yourself, pierce your body, do whatever you want. Your labor or your capital, those are the two things you have that are taken up and inscribed in the uh, capitalist machine. The rest does not matter. So if you're here today, it's because you have enough capital to afford three weeks at the Collegium. You got here following a circuit of capital, the money you paid for your your plane ferry and your buses and your trains and everything else you needed to do to get here, your lodging and your meals, and we all know the way capital gets inscribed. It gets inscribed in your bank account, in your credit card statements. Inscription still exists, and it's the most important thing, but it's no longer inscribed directly on your body, it's inscribed on your capital, or the labor that you have in order to produce capital. That's the way you're included in the system. If you're unemployed, if you don't have the identity card, you're not taken up into the capitalist machine. Uh, so this is why DeLillis says inscription, or what he calls this recording process, the way we all get coded, the way we get taken up into the social machine. And this is what he calls in the first section of that third chapter the inscribing socius. So the socius is a term that they uh, create um, which is not identical with society, what they term the socius is like the surface on which this process of inscription or recording or marking takes place. In primitive societies, they call the socius the body of the earth, which is not like the soil or the ground, which is truly productive, but something like Mother Earth or the Goddess Earth. Everything happens as if... It comes not from the soil and the ground, but from Mother Earth. In states, or at least in archaic states, it's the body of the despot, the sovereign. Everything happens as if it's recorded on the sovereign, or comes from the sovereign, or from the God of the sovereign. And then in capitalism, it's the body of capital itself. Like everything is described within. Uh, Capital. In each of these cases, this what socius, or what they call a full body, it's a body without a rings, whether it's the earth, the despot, or capital, appears as what they call the natural or divine presupposition of the forces of production. They're quasi cause. It's as if everything came from Mother Earth in primitive societies, as if everything has its origin in the despot or in his God. So, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the inscribing socius. It says everything really came from God. That's the way in which everything is taken up into the social machine. Or in capitalism, it's as if everything is derived from capital and money begets money. Uh, this is why Deleuze calls this process of recording the uh, numen. So, the pr- process of production he calls the libido, takes up this phrase from uh, Freud. He calls this process of recording the Numen, which is from this term coined by Rudolf Otto Otto to describe uh, the nature of religion, the numinous, because traditionally it has been religion that serves as this function of legitimation or justification, what he calls this process of inscription. It's as if everything comes from Mother Earth, or as if everything uh, comes um, comes from God. All right, so this brings me then to the second point I wanted to talk about. I think I'm on track to get us done uh, in time for a break. Um, So the first point was the status of desire and the question of desire. And uh, for Deleuze, that's the issue. How does desire desire its own repression? And at the same time, what are the conditions under which desire can be a condition for change, for revolution? Because it's the condition for both. him second uh, thing I want to talk about now is um, these two concepts of flow and code that lie at the heart of, of this book. And as I say, I've looked at all the literature on Deleuze. I don't think anyone has at least asked the question, like, why does he say the theory of society is a generalized theory of flows? It's not an obvious thing to say about politics. It's not an obvious thing to say about a um, the theory of society. Um, so I want to try to tackle that. Like, why does Deleuze think this is the fundamental problem, where no one else has seen this problem before. So what Deleuze says, philosophy also does, creates pro, uh, concepts, but it also poses new problematics. And he's trying to say, here's the problem that no one has seen before with regard to politics and the theory of society. It's really a problem of flows. Um, so here's a starting point, point. There, there's an interview um, from uh, called Influx in a collection of uh, text by Guattari where Deleuze explains that the concept of flow was a notion as a quote that we initially needed as an unqualified and undetermined notion that is a purely nominal concept and he throws out a bunch of examples which I've augmented here but all of them are you can like intuitively see where there's a problem of flows and that the way that they all need to be Coded or controlled, and I just made a, a list Obvious, most obviously there 's a flow of water and the building of dams and dikes to control and channel the water in the western u s today of course all the question of rights to a limited water supply. Um, Guy Wit wrote a book called Oriental Despotism, which he argued that the main problem for most archaic societies, say around the uh, Tigris and Euphrates, Babylon, or Egypt, was the control of the water, so it was one of the primary um, problems faced by um, uh, archaic states, or their economic flows, such as money and capital, along with the control of markets, or their material flows of, of utilities and raw materials, such as electricity, along with the control of the grid to keep the electricity flowing, their flows of commodities, along with their marketing and transport, there's the flow of traffic, this is something Virilio writes about, along with the regulation of the highways, avoiding traffic jams, the mastery and control of speed, There are social flows, such as flows of population flows of immigrants and foreigners over their borders, along with the ability to code, code and control that with passports and uh, immigration control. Their flows of sewage and refuse and the question of what to do with them. Their somatic flows, such as urine, blood, sperm, sweat, feces, milk, menstrual blood, and so on, with all their various coatings. <laughs> One can even think of flows of thought, and the attempt to code and control the flow of thought via marketing, advertising, the media, and so forth, such as the flow of scientific knowledge, as well as the flow of opinion, or as Deleuze liked to say, there are flows of thought that are made up of, that are stupid. He says there's a flow of stupidity that we all participate in, just a flow of thought that we're all a part of and that has been produced, and uh, the the word is much better in French, it's betise, it's not necessarily stupidity, it's sort of associated with... Uh, the animals, but it's it's why we'll all watch TV and then ask the same questions about who won what's that show on American Idol or something. So there's a flow of thought that even uh, Plato called opinion, that is simply given, that's produced, and that we all participate in. And Deleuze himself said, the question of philosophy and the question of philosophers in producing concept was to manage to extract from this flow of stupidity, singularities, and to produce something new out of this flow of thought we're thinking all the time, in a way, but we're thinking stupid thoughts most of the time. How do you extract from that uh, something that's uh, genuinely new? So these are all just like examples, intuitive examples, of why the concept of flow is important and the control and coding of flow is important. But I don't think it gets philosophically to what's at stake uh, for Deleuze and where he got this notion of flow from, because I think it primarily comes from economics, Uh, uh, Robert Heilbronner wrote a popular survey of the great economic thinkers called the Worldly Philosophers, which is a great title for economists, because we don't usually think of them as philosophers, but they are philosophers, but dealing with the most worldly of things, which is economics and money and the things we deal with every day, but don't think they're objects of our uh, philosophical thinking. The three greatest of the worldly philosophers are, of course, Adam Smith, Karl Marx, and John Maynard Keynes. Uh, Now, Deleuze only occasionally refers to Adam Smith, uh, but I think he was strongly influenced certainly by Marx, but also by Keynes, so I want to say a word uh, about uh, each of them in turn and and where the notion of flow comes from. In the 1990 interview, Deleuze said, quote, "...I believe that Felix Guattari and myself have remained Marxists. This is because we do not believe in a political philosophy that would not be centered on the analysis of capitalism and its developments." end of quote. It's nonetheless true that, as Leotard noted in a review he made of anti immediately after its publication, that capitalism and schizophrenia contains a critique of Marx that is implicit rather than explicit since a surprisingly large number of classical Marxist concepts, such as the super and infrastructure in a way, ideology, alienation, the class struggle, work value theory, the dialectic of contradiction, and so on, simply drop out of Deleuze and Guattari's analyses completely. They are neither analyzed nor critiqued, but simply ignored. (laughs) So they're Marxists. They're Marxists who let a lot of Marx simply uh, disappear. Yet what Deleuze and Guattari retain of Marx's analysis is the definition of capitalism that lies at the heart of Book One of Capital. And in this sense, capitalism and schizophrenia can be said to present a Marxist theory of capitalism, but one that has been transformed and adapted to new conditions, which is something Marx himself had to happen, because as capitalism mutates and evolves, new analyses are going to be required. So first point, what, what Deleuze t- retains from Marx is the definition he gives of capitalism in the first book of Capital, which is organized around the encounter of two elements of abstraction, or what Deleuze will call, and this is his language, not Marx's of course, two decoded flows, the flow of subjective labor and the flow of objective capital. On the one hand, the flow of labor must no longer be determined or codified as as slavery or serfdom, but must become naked and free labor, Marx said, in the form of a worker having to sell his or her labor capacity. And on the other hand, wealth no longer could be determined as landed wealth or as a merchant's money dealing, but had to become pure, homogenous, independent capital which was capable of buying the labor of the worker. Capitalism appears, according to Marx, only when these two purely quantitative flows of unqualified capital and unqualified labor encounter each other and conjugate. Until that happened, we had free labor, right, which is what we all have. We all have a labor capacity, and capital is the thing that's capable of buying our labor capacity and paying, paying for it. That's why uh, Deleuze says, "Your labor or your capital." That's all that capitalism cares about. Capitalism came into existence. When labor and capital were freed up, it's not just money anymore, it's capital. It's not just that you work or you're a peasant tilling the fields. You have a labor capacity that you sell and it's bought by capital. When those two flows conjugated, then capitalism came into existence. Now, I'll leave to the side the complicated historical analysis of how and why these two flows conjugated. The place to go for this is Althusser and Balibar's Analyses in reading capital because they address this question how and why did this conjunction take place? Why did it happen in Europe rather than somewhere else? Why not China in the 13th century when all the conditions seemed to be right? Why not in Rome? And these are all like historical contingent questions. The fact is, it happened, so I'll leave that to the side. But I want to make two sort of brief philosophical. Um, uh, observations about how Deleuze interprets and uses this Marxist definition of capitalist, this conjunction of capital and labor. For Deleuze, the philosophical importance of this is that it entails a common movement, both the discovery of labor and the discovery of capital, away from representation to what Deleuze calls at several places in anti Oedipus the activity of production in general. What does he mean by this? Marx had said that Luther's merit, And religion was to have determined the essence of religion not on the side of the object, like does God exist or does God not exist, but as an interior religiosity, its faith or interiority as the source of religion. Kierkegaard will pick up on this. So it's a turn away from what seems to be the object of religion to its condition in interiority or faith. Adam Smith and Ricardo, said Marx, this is Marx's analysis, did something similar in political economy. They located the essence of wealth, not in its object, land or money, or whatever whatever it might be, but rather in an abstract and interiorized subjective essence, which is your labor capacity, your capacity to produce. What faith or interiority is to religion, labor, your labor capacity is to political economy. That's what you own. It's your essence as a person in capitalism. You have a labor capacity. You've got to work in order to get capital. That defines who you are. And the same, Deleuze will say, and now this is Deleuze adding to Marx, is true of Freud. His greatness lies in having determined the essence or nature of desire no longer in relation to objects, aims, or even ends, like reproduction, having children, what have you, but as an abstract subjective essence which he called libido or sexuality. It's a very similar discussion. You have a subjective essence, which is your libido, which you invest in different ways. You fall in love, you invest in people, you disinvest. This is why Deleuze can say the discovery of labor by Smith and Ricardo in political economy and the discovery of libido by Freud in libidinal economy is really one and the same thing, it is a discovery of this abstract subjective essence that determines us as subjects. This is a quote from page 270, The discovery of an activity of production in general and without distinction, as it appears in capitalism, is the identical discovery of both political economy and psychoanalysis beyond the determinate systems of representation. So this is why Deleuze can do with desire what he does with desire. It is a productive economy operating below the systems of representation, which always interpret desire in terms of lack. Uh, this is a quote that, uh, from page 24 of Antiochus. Let us remember once again one of Marx's caveats. We cannot tell from the mere taste of wheat who grew it. The product gives us no hint as to the system and relations of production. So you can't tell from the product, the result, what the mechanisms of production were. And that's what Deleuze wants to do in this book. And in general, Jose, this was a, uh, a transition that a lot of modern uh, thought has made. It's what uh, Foucault talks about in the order of things, in the movement from representation uh, to production in biology, for instance. We no longer do natural history, where we simply list the traits and characteristics and features of a fully developed organism. We now have molecular biology, in which we determine uh, the process of production and development that produced the organism. So we look at production rather than simply how the organism gets represented. Same thing in geology. We can look at Mount Everest and say, well, it's an object out there, but we no longer really think in those terms because we know that Mount Everest is really the result of a process. It's India tectonic plate slamming into Asia, the Himalayas being pushed up, the process of erosion and glaciation. That's what's really going on. That's the reality of what's in front of us. It's a process of production. What gets represented to us as an object like uh, Mount Everest, is really the result of this process of production. So Deleuze is doing the same thing with regard to to desire. Desire is a process of production. Desire is productive and we need to penetrate into this level of production and not simply be content with the products or the results that we see, because that doesn't really provide us knowledge um, with much of anything. So that's the first point, this move from representation to production. Labor and desire are both part of this movement to production, and for Deleuze they're one and the same thing. Second point is this, uh, and this too is how the third chapter begins. Marx held that, given this discovery of the activity of production in general, now in capitalism, a retrospective reading of universal history became possible from the viewpoint of capitalism, that is, from the viewpoint of these two decoded flows of labor and capital. And this will be a theme Lewis takes up. It is as if previous economies, whether they're primitive economies or states, um, anticipated capitalism. They had a sense of capitalism. They had a sense of these decoded flows that capitalism is going to be based on. But they deliberately warded it off. They had mechanisms for avoiding <laughs> capitalism. I mean, all like you to just think about uh, Middle Ages, usury was a mortal sin. You went to hell if you lent out money at interest. And now it's what makes the world go round. And Deleuze is saying, look, there were mechanisms in place early on where societies anticipated what capitalism became, but essentially were aware of it and avoided it. And the place where this becomes most obvious, they say, is in myth. Because where did primitive societies have an image of a world in which all codes were decoded, in which everything was running through? free. It was in their midst. It says, in the beginning, everything was formless and chaotic. In the beginning, there were decoded flows. But thankfully, the world has now become coded, and now, because of our God and because of our king and our despot, we have the society we live in. So they had an imaginary sense of these decoded flows. Uh, Capitalism is what actually brings this about in reality, from Marx's point of view. So he says, a retrospective reading of universal history is possible. Now that we see capitalism, we can look back and Uh, and read what happened before, because capitalism is like the nightmare they're trying to avoid. But That's Marx. Now I want to turn to Keynes, because the problem with Marx for Deleuze is that he does not have a concept of flow. He defines neither labor nor capital in terms of flow, so to understand Deleuze's concept of flow, we have to turn to that other great uh, economist, the British economist, John Maynard Keynes. Deleuze says three things about uh, Keynes' great book, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, which sounds really boring. I actually read it uh, a couple months ago. Uh, it's not as boring as it sounds. But three things he says about Keynes's uh, book. First, it presented the first modern theory of flows. Second, it injected the problem of desire into the theory of money. These are things that Marx didn't do. And it's now a truism, in a way, to say that psychology and economics are interrelated, that stock markets are really mirrors of the human psyche. You know, now we've figured out nature in some ways, but it's almost as if stock markets are like second nature. Everyone has their own myths and superstitions about how the stock market is going to work and how it's going to go up or down. And you know, financial people have their own algorithms. But it's surrounded with myth in the way you know, nature used to be surrounded with myth. And it's psychology. Psychology and the theory of money are interrelated. It's Keynes who first posited this in a straightforward way. So you, these are two things that Deleuze derives directly from Keynes. A theory of flow and the idea that desire and money are interconnected. And thirdly, Keynes proposed a new model of regulation and stimulus for the economy. In Deleuzean terms, Keynesianism was one of the laboratories for the production of what he's going to call axioms during the New Deal and afterwards and during the Depression. I should say, if you don't know much about Keynes, Keynes wrote The General Theory in the Midst of the Great Depression. I think it was published in 1936. He hated uh, Marx. He was not a Marxist by any means. In fact, he was a, a capitalist to the core. He wanted to find an answer to what happened to cause the Great Depression, because no one was really able to answer it uh, at that point, and then he wanted to uh, find a solution to save uh, people from the Great Depression. So this idea of flows and this injection of desire into economics were part of his diagnostic of what had happened to capitalism in the Great Depression. And then his solution was government intervention. Like, essentially said the flow of capital had stopped in the Great Depression for reasons he gave, and the only way to stimulate the economy was for the government to inject enormous amounts of money in order to get the economy going again. In 1971, Nixon uttered a famous phrase, We are all Keynesians now, which is probably true because you could say the stimulus package of the Obama administration and this now renewed push toward regulation are all thoroughly Keynesian. They're all derived directly from Keynes. There's flows, there's desire in these flows. If the flow stops, if the credit stops flowing, then uh, the flow has to be like, restarted from somewhere else, and that's going to be the government. So everything Obama is doing, you can say, is coming from, um, from Keynes. But I'm less interested in this notion of government intervention that Keynes uh, put forward, although it's part of what Deleuze wants to think about, um, than this notion of flow and the, the notions that are associated with it. So here's three of these concepts uh, that come from Keynes that Deleuze um, uh, picks up on. And uh, this notion of flow. And then the notion of code. This is sort of Deleuze's interpretation of something uh, in Keynes. And then the notion of stock. And if you've read Antioedipus and know a little bit about it, these three notions, flow, code, stock, essentially parallel the three syntheses that Deleuze sets out in uh, the first uh, two chapters. So let me just summarize these uh, very quickly. This is like throwing out economic concepts that Deleuze is going to take up philosophically. Flow. From an economic point of view, and this is not that difficult, but flow is simply the transmission or exchange of money, or more generally, of economic value. That moves from one pole to another pole. That is, there's an incoming flow and an outgoing flow. The term pole here simply refers to the individuals or groups, the firms, the companies, the corporations, that function as the interceptors of these incoming and outgoing flows. So it's easy enough. It's your bank account. There's money coming in, there's money coming out, you... As the owner of that account are an interceptor of those flows. They come in and they go out. Second motion is a code, which is a correlative uh, uh, a correlative of the concept of flow, which is a form precisely of inscription or recordings. You can see where Deleuze is reading these back and forth, which in the capitalist formation assumes the form of an accounting system. Capitalism couldn't have developed. That the two-ledger accounting system, so you can keep track of the flows. A flow is coming in, a flow is coming out. It's a change in assets or liabilities. My paycheck is an incoming flow, uh, and I want to buy something, it's an outcoming flow. In fact, money gives a very inaccurate picture, I think, about this operation of coding and inscription in capitalism, because I think I read somewhere only 11% of the monetary mass in the U.S. exists, as hard cash. Like, it's a minor version of what really happens in capitalism. There are flows taking place all the time, which don't get transferred by means of money. You simply change the numbers on the account somewhere, and the flows are moving. So the only way we have knowledge of these flows is through a code. So they're strictly correlative notion. There's no code without a flow, but there's no flow without the code. So they're moving all the time. But you can't, like, open a vault somewhere, like under the New York Stock Exchange, and see this flow of money taking place. It, it literally, in Deleuze's terms, it's virtual. Like, it's nowhere except in these codes that exist in banks and in computers around the world. But what they're tracking, what they're marking, what they're inscribing is, in fact, the most real thing in capital, in capitalism, which is the movement of capital. So it's nothing you can see. It's something virtual, and yet it's a thing our entire lives depend upon and revolve around. Unless you can dip into that flow somehow and get some of it for yourself, (laughs) meaning your own money and your own paycheck, you're not going to get very far. Um, So this is why DeLois will say, then, the unnameable power, like the nightmare of every society, including capitalism, is the terror of a non-coded, a decoded flow, a flow that somehow has eluded uh, the codes. So, like my salary, the cost of my plane ticket to come here, were all coded flows because I know the value. They're coded very specifically. But what was the problem of this current crisis, the current recession, with the subprime derivatives that the banks had bought and sold to each other? At a certain point, uh, people started foreclosing. But all these things had been bundled together. The banks literally did not know the value of this flow. It became an uncoded flow. And so the whole system just stopped, because the banks weren't willing to lend out money to good credit, since they didn't know what kind of money they had. They had this flow of capital that was completely uncoded, and they still don't know. It's not that they can't compute the value, they don't even know how to go about doing it. There's this uncoded flow that suddenly the system grinds to a halt. So this is Deleuze's point. It's the terror, this nightmare, of an uncoded flow in whatever form it appears that constitutes the nightmare of any society. So there's flow, then, which is capital. It's coded through an accounting system in in capitalism. And then the third concept, after flow and code, is the concept of stock, which is probably the easiest of them all. If flow is what moves from one pole to another, from one account to another, if coding is the way we know the existence of those flows, then stock is simply what is related to one of these poles uh, uh, as my material or juridical possession. So I have a stock. It means I've extracted, I've selected, I've detached, extracted something from the flow, and it's become mine. It's my share of the flow. It's my portion of the flow. So it's mine. That's the phrase the Lewis likes to repeat here. So we have three notions here that Deleuze just derives directly from Keynes and directly from contemporary economics – flow, code, or an accounting system, uh, and stock. Um, So let me say a word about each of these uh, concepts, and then we'll take our break. So first, uh, a word about flow – I've said that Marx held that a retrospective reading of universal history is possible from the viewpoint of capitalism. Um, And Dulles picks up on this idea and the way he rereads universal history then is precisely through this notion of a flow. Um, Because primitive societies, he says, operated, obviously, primarily in terms of barter. They didn't have money. You simply exchanged. I'll trade you my bottle of water for your pen and we come to an agreement and and we simply barter. There's no money as an abstract general equivalent. But even Marx said that Already it's clear now that we have capitalism that every object in primitive societies was already kind of qualified flow. It was a qualified piece of labor that had been produced somewhere, even if that wasn't apparent and evident in primitive societies. So we can see that this is already a qualified flow, but primitive societies, he said, um, sort of held that in check. Because what was the one thing that tended to destroy primitive societies in the colonial period to At some points, it was simply enough to introduce money, because money functions as an abstract equivalent that can sit in for my bottle of water, for the pen I want to trade with you, for any object whatsoever. It's an equivalent that can be traded for money. And once you introduce that into a primitive economy, it's a decoded flow. So what's important is no longer the objects of a primitive economy, but this thing called money that can be exchanged for any of these objects. So in a lot of places during colonialism, the easiest way to destroy the primitive economies was simply to introduce money, and the codes were gone. Why? Because the codes were upset by the introduction of this decoded flow, which was this abstract, generalized equivalent of money. Uh, second point to those makes here. Why does money get introduced? He says, it's not in order to encourage commerce among people. He says, money is introduced by states in order for them to be able to tax every transaction that takes place. (laughs) So money is something that states use, because if I just trade you my bottle of water for a pen, that's just something between us. But if we... Exchange in terms of money—we have a monetary value that the state can come in and say, "I'm going to take five or seven percent from." So this is a theme we'll get to, but that's a means in which states can overcode primitive society. It's a way of getting their grubby paws into every economic transaction that takes place. Without the introduction of money, things just take place between you and me. Money is an abstract equivalent; it's a flow that states can extract a certain surplus from and put into the coffers of the state. Without money, states could not exist. So money, from Deleuze and Vittorio's point of view, was um, an invention of states, and it was enough to undo the primitive uh, economies and their, uh, the mechanism of barter. And something else happens, they say, in the state. If primitive economies are based on finite blocks of debt between you and me, in states, Deleuze says, the debt becomes infinite, because we constantly have an indebtedness to the state. We constantly have to pay our taxes. We constantly have to pay our sales tax. We constantly owe the state something. It's a debt that we will never finish paying off as long as we live. And there's an interesting section in here, which Deleuze goes through very quickly, I think it's coming from Nietzsche, where he says that's what uh, Christian theology is, in its Pauline form, is simply a transposition, a spiritualization, of this notion of infinite debt. Because you've sinned, And you owe God a debt. The wages of your sin is death. And death is an infinite debt that you cannot pay off to God. So what does God do? He comes down, pays the debt himself by dying on the cross, and pays the debt to himself. He pays off the debt to himself on my behalf. As Nietzsche says, kind of the wet dream of the man of tomorrow. We have an indebtedness to God, then God comes and pays it off. But all of St. Paul, his entire theology is based on economics. And indebtedness You have a debt to God that you can't pay off, and therefore God has to come and redeem you and pay off the debt to himself, for himself. But all that is linked, from Deleuze-Mittar's uh, point of view, uh, to um, this question of flow, in a way. And then a the third point, what happens in capitalism? Because in capitalism, it's not enough to say that there's money that undoes the codes of primitive economies. Um, capitalism, they say, is a is a new threshold of decoding or deterritorialization, because it's not simply money that functions in, in capitalism. In capitalism, they say there's, in fact, two forms of money, which correspond to these two decoded flows of labor and capital. On the one hand, there's what they call payment money, which is what we're used to. It's the money you and I get in our paychecks, and it's the loose change in our pockets, it's the bills in our, our, our wallets. It's sort of segments of capital that get given to us as laborers in order to pay us. But much more important than capital, Deleuze says, is what he calls finance money, which is something absolutely and totally and completely different. It's what Deleuze calls the capitalist form of infinite debt, a vast dematerialization, a demonetarization of money. In other words, it's money that's no longer money. It no longer circulates as money. Rather than transferring pre-existing currency as a means of payment, what most of us do. Finance capital is a flow that the banks create ex nihilo as a debt owing to themselves. It hollows out a negative money at one extreme as a debt entered as a liability of the banks while projecting a positive money at the other extreme as a credit granted to the productive economy by the banks. And it's this second form of money, Deleuze says, that constitutes the true economic force of capitalism, an immense, deterralized flow that constitutes the full body of capital. This is a quote from a thousand plateaus. Today, we can depict an enormous, so-called stateless, monetary mass that circulates through foreign exchange and across borders, eluding control by states, forming a multinational, ecumenical organization, constituting a de facto, supranational power untouched by governmental decisions. So this is what he calls the full body of capital that our desire is uh, plugged into. And Dulles says, strictly speaking, there is no common measure between these two forms of money. The money we get is simply a segment that's extracted from that flow of capital, but there's no common measure between these two flows. Hence, he says, and I'm sorry, this is getting very economic, but he says, hence the importance of banks. Uh, this is about Marx is unfortunate that Marxist economics too often dwell on considerations concerning the mode of production and on the theory of money as the general equivalent as found in the first section of Capital, uh, without attaching enough importance to banking pras- practice, to financial operations, and to the specific circulation of credit money. And this is Deleuze's writing in 1972. It's like this prescient uh, you know, warning about what's just happened in the past year. Uh, banking pra- practice, financial operations, and the specific circulation of credit money, which is exactly what stopped in the current crisis. that's where the true action of capitalism is, um, is taking place. And then, final point, then we'll take a break. Um, to say that libidinal economy and political economy are one and the same is tantamount to saying that this, the desire of the most disadvantaged creature in any social formation, will invest with all its strength, irrespective of any economic understanding or lack of it, in the capitalist social field as a whole. Flows, they say, who does not desire flows? (laughs) Who does not desire capital? And the relationships between flows and breaks in flows. And this is why Deleuze can say in a sense, and this is a weird quote on page 230, in a sense... It is the bank that controls the whole system and the investment of desire <laughs> in capitalism. And this is a quote um, from page 105. It is not. By, so this is where he's saying, Libido and sexuality invest political economy at every level. It is not by means of a metaphor that a banking or stock market transaction, a claim, a coupon, a credit, is able to arouse people who are not necessarily bankers. There are socio-economic complexes that are also veritable complexes of the unconscious. In other words, it's like the Oedipal Complex, but there are socio-economic complexes that come from the arousal you get when you get a boost in your paycheck or get the grant that you've applied for. There are socio-economic complexes of the libido um, that communicate a voluptuous wave from the top to the bottom of the hierarchy. For it is a matter of flows, stocks, and breaks in, and fluctuations of flows. Desire is present wherever something flows and runs, carrying along with it interested subjects, but also drunken or slumbering subjects, toward lethal destinations. Hence the goal of schizoanalysis which is what they're developing in the last chapter, to analyze the specific nature of the libidinal investments in the economic and political spheres, and thereby to show how, in the subject that desires, desire can be made to desire uh, its own repression. Uh, So that's flow. Let me start. Two two more things to say about code. I just want to mention this um, because there's a lot to be said. So that's some comments on, on, on flow. Uh, briefly about the concept of code. We tend to think of coding as um, something like the Morse code or the civil code as some, something that's pre-given. And then we simply apply the code to what's being coded. But the loser's notion of code is more directly, and he, he's explicit about this, derived from the biological notion of the genetic code. And he says, the coding that takes place in genetics and biological coding, uh, the movement from one... Uh, it's like biological reproduction from one generation to another, is more or less exactly the same as social reproduction. Biological reproduction is like social reproduction, because it's the passing along of information from one generation to the next. So the genetic code is a code that tells you how the material flows, biological flows, should be coded in order to produce a new individual. And that new individual is always going to be different than the parents, so the coding is not something that pre-exists, that we simply apply. The code changes every time it produces uh, something new. So that's the first point. It's a form of inscription. A second point is that it's molecular. It's happening at the level of production, to use that distinction again, and not at the level of representation. So this is a theme that Deleuze and Guattari uh, work out in the book at various points, the difference between the molecular and the molar. Like, molar simply describes the result, the effect of things. It's the organism that appears at the end of the process. It's not Everest that's there at the end of the process. These are molar entities. A sulfur formation is a molar entity. But to understand what's really going on at the level of desire, you have to get to the molecular level, because that's where the flows are moving, and that's where the flows um, are getting uh, coded. And, yeah, I was going to say something about stock, but I think we should take uh, our break, and then we'll come back. Okay. So, how does
2: this work? minutes, Okay. The new, the, the, is, uh,
1: the new stuff is King.
0: Yeah. yeah. it's good. i never really. Uh, so I wanted to do three things. The theory of desire, why that lies at the basis of Antiochus, and sort of a few things about that. And then, partly just to help you read this text, get out these concepts of flow and code and how they are working and why they're important. And For Deleuze, and we see the tie to capitalism, this whole idea that flow comes to the fore as an economic concept from Keynes and the interpretation of capitalism, but then there's this retrospective reading of universal history from the point of view of flow and code. And now I just want to maybe just take 15 minutes or so, and then we'll do questions. Ask this last question why schizophrenia is in the title, and what's the relationship between capitalism and schizophrenia. Obviously schizophrenia for them is not an ideal, like we should all become schizophrenics. (laughs) Uh, Nor are they necessarily saying that schizophrenia is the specific pathology of capitalism. All they do say at one point that to a certain extent this is true, that our society produces schizophrenics in the same way it produces pearl shampoo and Ford cars. The only difference being that schizophrenics aren't saleable, and that's a quote from the book. Um, but Deleuze makes a distinction in talking about schizophrenia between the schizophrenic as a clinical entity, like the schizophrenic as a pathology that people you find in clinics and hospitals, and what they call schizophrenia as a pure process which is a philosophical concept that they derive from the clinical concept of, of schizophrenia. So schizophrenia as a pathology is something that for them points to this idea of a pure process. And this pure process of schizophrenia is Deleuze's way of talking about desiring production in itself. So, in, sense, in essence, desiring production, desiring itself, is a pure process which they identify with schizophrenia. So Deleuze, in Difference and Repetition, developed a theory of ideas of his own. But for Deleuze, ideas, with a capital I, are not ideals, in either a Platonic sense or the Kantian sense. You know, Kant ideas are regulative notions that we perhaps try to approximate, but we never quite attain. For Deleuze, ideas are problems. That's a term, uh, the notion of problematic, that he derives from Kant's from Kant. Ideas are problematics. Ideas are problems that we need to resolve. So schizophrenia as a pure process is not an ideal that we want to approximate, but it's a problem. It's a problematic that every society needs to find some sort of resolution to. So schizophrenia as a pure process, they say, is the absolute limit of all social formations. Capitalism is kind of the real limit, because it functions on the basis of decoded flows, but as we'll see, capitalism decodes flows only by constantly recoding them somehow, because it can't function purely on the basis of decoded flows. But schizophrenia, then, would be this absolute limit. It'd be the end of the world, they say. The apocalypse, where we simply have decoded flows running running freely um, somewhere. Uh, but that's a problem. I mean, that's not an ideal to be attained. That's the problem that every um, social formation has to uh, resolve. So this is on page 176. uh, We shall speak of an absolute limit every time the schizo flows, pass through the wall, scramble all the codes, the body without organs is the deterritorialized socius, the wilderness where the decoded flows run free, the end of the world, the apocalypse. So it's a way of him to talk about an idea in this sense. What is the idea of desiring production as it is, in and of itself? Uh, What is desiring production in and of itself before it gets taken up into some sort of social um, formation? So in this sense, it's a break with Marx as well, because for Marx, the two fundamental figures of capitalism were the capitalist and the worker, or the proletariat, because these were the embodiments the instantiations of these two decoded flows of capital and labor. So you could define capitalism by the class conflict between laborers who had a labor capacity and the capitalists who had the capital to buy that labor capacity. And we'll see next time, hopefully, that Deleuze doesn't think the class conflict is what drives uh, capitalism because he thinks really there's only one effective class in Capitalism, And that's what he says is the bourgeoisie or the middle class which is capable of filling capitalism from one side to the other. The essential distinction is not between two classes, but between this class that fills the capitalist axiomatic and what lies outside that class, which is something he'll talk about in the A Thousand Plateaus as minorities, people who aren't able to be taken up into the capitalist axiomatic. So, um, but funct- essentially in this book, for Deleuze, the best figure of, the ca- of capitalism is neither the capitalist nor the laborer, but the schizophrenic. <laughs> Why? Because the schizophrenic is someone who functions on the basis of decoded flows. Right? The problem for the schizophrenic is that there is someone who is in touch with flows, like, something is happening to me. That is carrying me outside of myself. I'm being swept up by a flow, and I don't necessarily know what it is. So here's a quote from uh, Thousand Plateaus: "Catatonia is this affect is too strong for me, so I just retreat to a catatonic state." Or a flash is saying that this affect is too strong for me; it's carrying me off somewhere else, somewhere outside of my ego, somewhere outside of my sense of myself, and that's what schizophrenia is. So schizophrenia is a pathology that is close to the nature of decoded flows. So capitalism and schizophrenia are linked from their point of view because they both function on the basis of decoded flows. Um, Now generally, from Deleuze and Guattari's point of view, when we start talking about the status of persons in this book... You and I as persons always function as simply interceptors with regard to flows. And the obvious case is our bank accounts. When it comes to capitalism, we're, at the, we're intercepting flows in our paychecks and we're giving out money. We function as interceptors of flows. The family as well, this is why the critical of Freud, is bisected, transected, by social and political flows, and this is why they think Freud is wrong. It's not like we grow up in the family and then only secondarily, afterward, do we enter um, culture or society. There's another quote. They say, there's always an uncle from America, there's a brother who went bad, an aunt who took off with a military man, a cousin out of work, bankrupt, or a victim of the crash, an anarchist grandfather, a grandmother in the hospital, crazy or senile. The family does not engender its own ruptures. Families are filled with gaps, transcended by breaks that are not familial. The commune, the Dreyfus Affair, religion and atheism, the Spanish Civil War, the rise of fascism, Stalinism, the Vietnam War, May 68, all these things form complexes of the unconscious more effective than everlasting Oedipus. So every family, they say, is transected by these social and political flows that are flowing through them and that the child is participating in from day one. Uh, Same thing with love, and I'll just uh, mention this. Uh, This is great passages in the last chapter. We make love with flows, the voice says. Three quotes I just want to throw out here. The persons to whom our loves are dedicated, including our parental persons, intervene only as points of connection, of disjunction, and conjunction of flows, whose libidinal tenor of a properly unconscious investment they translate. Desire does not take as its object persons or things, but the entire surroundings that it traverses, the vibrations and flows of every sort to which it is joined, including their breaks and captures. Our loves are always situated on a territoriality that, in relation to us, either deterritorializes us or else re-territorializes us. So even our loves, he says, have to do with these flows, because people are interceptors of these flows. We never fall in love with a person. A person is always situated in an entire social, political milieu transected by flows that we're falling in love with. And there's a reason why we become invested in them. And there are unconscious reasons that we don't always know. And when Deleuze asks, what are your desiring machines? The question is, how and why have you constructed yourself in this manner and fallen in love with this person, make this connection here in this way? What are the flows that have linked you Um, together. So this is why schizophrenia becomes important for them. All of us as persons are interceptors of flows. We lie sort of uh, at the intersection of all these flows, and the schizophrenic is simply someone who lives that more intensely than the rest of us, who is closer to that. Uh, And one of the problems they have with Freud's reading of, and Lacan's frankly, of schizophrenics is that they don't really listen. (laughs) to what schizophrenics are saying. There's a famous analysis by Freud, uh, Judge Schrader, uh, wrote a famous memoir and, uh, called The Memoirs of My Nervous Illness. He was a judge in Germany. Actually, he was allowed to keep his job because he could manage his money. And as long as he could manage his money, he could have whatever deliriums he wanted as a judge. Uh, but, you know, it's famous, and they cite him in the book son is shooting sunbeams up his ass, and he's, going, he's developing the breasts of a woman, and, and he's going to change the uh, um, uh, the educational system in, in Germany, which he actually did have an odd effect on. Uh, and Freud interprets this text, which is just crazily delirious. And everything he mentions, of course, gets boiled down to the father and the mother and the child. Everything uh, is interpreted as if it's familial. And yet Deleuze's point is that, when you listen to the ravings of schizophrenics, he says it's never or rarely has anything to do with their family. It's the Russians a quote, that worry him. It's the Chinese. Their mouth is dry. Somebody buggered me in the metro. There are
2: germs is
0: germs and spermatozoa swimming everywhere. It's Franklin's fault. It's the Jews. It's the Maoists. There's a complete delirium of the social field. When you listen to madmen rave, it's never about their mother and father. They're completely and immediately tied into the social field. And when you read Freud, on any psychotic episode he reduces all of that to say well if he's talking about Franco he's really talking about his father (laughs) everything becomes linked back to the family and Delosio Vattari's point is no it's exactly the opposite their libido is tied in directly to the social political field their complex is immediately social and political so the libido libidinal economy and political economy are one and the same thing the best place to see that they say is in schizophrenics because they're their delirium is immediately social and political. And they say at bottom, capitalism is a kind of delirium. Like monetary flows, they say, are strictly speaking schizophrenic. Like no one controls them, they're a pure flow. It's a kind of delirious flow. And it's true that bankers and stockbrokers try to interpret this uh, rationally and come up with axioms and principles and ways of controlling uh, the market. But Deleuze says somewhere that, um, you know, the rationality of economics is somewhat like uh, uh, like theology. Once you posit the axioms, you can act rationally. But like, once you say, uh, you believe in the virgin birth and the incarnation, everything else can be rational. But uh, what you're starting with are always one of these irrational postulates. And at the bottom of both capitalism and schizophrenia, uh, there's delirium. So I'm just three points, then, that they, when they listen, to the ravings of schizophrenics. There are three themes that they uh, uh, have extracted from them. And this is where, essentially, the book begins. And I want to throw these out, and then, and then I'll end. Um, but this is where they get the notion of the body without organs. So, so they're talking about how schizophrenics experience their own um, own bodies. Um, and it's tied to what I was talking about earlier with regard to infants. But the first aspect is what they call the inorganic functioning of their organs. So it's almost exactly the same as what I was talking about uh, with regard to to infants. But here's one example from Bruno Bettelheim's book, uh, The Empty Fortress, it's a schizophrenic child who was called Little Joey, who Bruno Bettelheim called a kind of child machine. He was in um, uh, an asylum, but he could only live, eat, defecate, breathe and sleep only by plugging himself into motors and carburetors and steering wheels and lamps that he had around his bed. There were all these imaginary circuits that he had set up, without which he was unable to function. Now, I remember, this is a similar example as of, uh, for Deleuze and is What a Baby Does. It's not a sense of the body as an organism, but the organism can only function as a machine that's plugged into these various flows. And he literally could only eat if he had something plugged in. And Bettelheim says they had trouble sometimes making sure he didn't actually plug one of his plugs into a real socket (laughs) um, and electrocute himself, but he had to function as this kind of machine, an inorganic functioning of the body. Schizophrenics feel themselves as linked to the world in a non-organic way. Uh, The second aspect, and I just want to run through these really quickly, is what Artaud called the body without organs, per se. And this is where Deleuze and Guitar get this notion. It's from uh, Artaud's uh, his own delirium. The body without organs is a situation of the body where all these strange interminglings of the organs with their flows stops and breaks down. It's like a catatonic state. Um, closed eyes, pinched nostrils, closed anus, ulcerated stomach, eaten lungs, this is our toe. No mouth, no tongue, no teeth, no esophagus, no stomach, no anus. Everything just stops. (laughs) It's a catatonic state. And says, authors of horror stories know this well, that's what's truly horrifying. It's not a dead corpse, but a living being that's catatonic. It's like the lights are on, but no one's home. Like you're living. It's like the night of living dead. But everything simply stops. And that's one image of what the body without organs is. It's what they call intensity reduced to zero. So it's not a question of your extensive organic body, but your intensive internal life. And the body without organs is what shuts all that down at a, at a certain point, and that intervenes in this, in, in this process. And yet, as Artaud said what the enemy of the body without organs is is not really the organs themselves in this strange functioning but the organism like the fact that my body is organized in this particular way Artaud felt this as a kind of judgment of God like why does my body have to be organized in this way as this particular kind of organism and there's a quote los lost to cite from William Burroughs in The Naked Lunch so this is a literary example of this um, this is a kind of schizophrenic understanding of one's body, and it's a quote, The human body is scandalously inefficient. Instead of a mouth and an anus to get out of order, why not have an all-purpose hole to eat and eliminate? We could seal up the nose and mouth, fill in the stomach, make an air hole direct into the lungs where it should have been in the first place. No organ is constant as regards either function or position. Sex organs sprout everywhere. Rectums open, open, defecate, and close. The entire organism changes color and consistency in split-second adjustments. Now, when Deleuze and Guattari then interpret this, it's like the body of that organ, then, for the schizophrenic, becomes the surface of inscription. It's where things get coded. And what the schizophrenic reacts against is that things are coded in this particular way in their body, because they don't necessarily experience that body In that way as an organism. It can be coded in a million other different ways, which they experience in their hallucinations and their delirium. So the first aspect is this kind of non-organic functioning of the organs. The second aspect is the body without organs, which repels this organic understanding of the body, and yet makes possible another relationship between the organs that is non-organic. In other words, things can be coded differently. So that's what the body without organs becomes. It codes things, say, as an organism, but it also repels that and makes another uh, uh, system of coding possible. And then there's this third aspect that, again, they get from both Artaud and Schrader in their description of schizophrenia, which is the theme of intensity. So between the body without organs, which is this recording surface, and these various assemblages or arrangements of the organ machines, there's a relation of attraction and repulsion. Sometimes the body with organ, without organs attracts these bodies, sometimes it repulses them and makes them shut down and stop functioning. And what this produces, they say, is a series of intensive states, intensities, that the schizophrenic experiences as one of the primary, um, I mean, you could say this translates the entire anguish of the schizophrenic, that there's a schizophrenic experience of intensive quantities, they say, in an almost pure state that is almost unbearable, like a cry, they say, suspended between life and death, an intense feeling of states of transition, states of pure, naked intensity, stripped of all shape or form. The maladies of the schizophrenic, they say, are often described as hallucinations or delirium, but this is not entirely accurate. Beneath the hallucinations of the senses... I see something, I hear voices in my head, and beneath the delirium of thought, I think something, it's Mao, it's Franco, it's all these things, beneath hallucinations and delirium. Deleuze says, there's something much more profound, which is a feeling of intensity, that is, a feeling of becoming, or a transition, a passage I feel a gradient is crossed, they say, on your body without organs. A threshold is surpassed or retreated from. A migration is brought about. I feel that I am becoming a woman, Schraber says. I feel that I am becoming a god. I feel that I am becoming pure matter. This is why the schizophrenic, sub- the schizophrenic subject has no fixed identity. It's forever decentered, defined by this series of states, metastable states through which it passes, and which it consumes. So this is how Deleuze interprets Nietzsche's breakdown. Because you know Nietzsche had about ten days between when he breaks down in Turin and when he actually collapses into silence. And in the meantime, he's sending out all these postcards and letters to various people and signing them with these different names, Cosima, or Dionysus, or even the Crucified which is odd, because Nietzsche's entire philosophy is directed against the crucified. He says, Dionysus or the crucified, have I been understood? He's the follower of Dionysus. He spends his whole time criticizing Christianity and the crucified. And yet in this ten days of his madness, he starts taking on the identity of the crucified as well as Dionysus. And uh, Deleuze's interpretation is to say, look, it's false to say that schizophrenics like identify themselves with other people out there, that Nietzsche, the former professor of philosophy, is identifying himself with either Jesus, or Dionysus the god, or whatever a schizophrenic does. Their interpretation is to say, no, the proper names have a different function. He's passing through a series of intensive states. Each of those intensive states gets a proper name attached to it. If it's a rising intensive state, a powerful one, a manic state, it gets the name Dionysus, because it's a friendly state. It's, it's a depressive one. <laughs> then it gets something like the Crucified, because it's a, it's a lesser state. It's a depressive state. And uh, there's a famous phrase in Nietzsche's absolute last letter that he sends off to uh, Jacob Burkhardt in Basel, where he says uh, in a footnote, it's one of the last things he writes, um, something like, like, what truly bothers me and what truly offends my modesty is that at bottom... All the names of history are I. <laughs> and for little and Wattari, that's the pure process of schizophrenia. It's just a pure series of intensive states that you and I as individuals consume. Like we identify ourselves. It's what I started with as an ego. We say, this is me, this particular intensive state, and all the rest are something else in me. But that's the reality of the ego, that the schizophrenic experience is closer than most of us. And in Nietzsche's case, right before he collapsed, it's simply every one of those intensive states had a proper name attached to it. The ascending, rising, manic states got the names of his friends, the falling, depressive states got the name of his enemies, like the crucified. But that's what was left of Nietzsche the ego. It was just this series of uh, intensive states. So this is where Deleuze and then Guattari will link this process of schizophrenia with all this economic stuff we're talking about in capitalism, because they think they're more or less one and the same thing. Because you have a series, this inorganic functioning of the organs, has to do with flows and breaks in the flows. Organs producing flows, organs breaking those flows. It's like your bank account. There's a flow, you break in the flow, and then it's yours. Uh, the body without organs has to do with the coding. Like, do you code your body in an organic way, the way most of us do, or? You do it in a schizophrenic way, where the organs sort of break down in the non-organic functioning of the body. It's a possibility for an alternate coding than the one we usually live with. And then these intensive feelings with the schizophrenic experiences, they're kind of the stock that falls to the experience of the schizophrenic subject. It's like our bank account. There's a flow. We extract something from the flow, and then we consume it. We pay. We come to Calagian. We buy our food. We buy things with it. It's the same thing with these intensive states. There's a series of intensive states that are part of the flow. We live them. It becomes our stock. And we say, there's a phrase that continues in this book, we say, so it's mine. And then I finally recognize myself within this flow that goes far beyond me as an ego. So this is the way they say schizophrenia and economics and capitalist economics in particular, are essentially one and the same thing. We're very close to each other, because they both operate in terms of flows, they all both operate in terms of codes, but in particular, they're decoding. And then there's always this remainder, this residue, whether it's these intensive states, or the money that comes into my bank, account, it's the stock. There's something that falls to me, that I say it's mine. But beyond that, there are these flows and codes that go far beyond this little portion that comes uh, that comes to me and that I appropriate for um, for myself. Uh,
2: so I'll stop there. <laughs>
0: interior by the exterior? Um, Yeah, that's a good question, because I use that notion, of interiority, with regard to religion and labor, and saying it's part of our interior essence. It's not actually their term. I'm picking that up, obviously, from Kierkegaard, because that's how he describes faith, as a form of interiority. And I think, in a sense, Deleuze has no notion of interiority, in a way. He'll say everything, you know, the exteriority of relations, everything is external. He says explicitly in his book, there is no such thing as a psychic reality. (laughs) There's nothing that's yours. I mean, if, if your drives are part and parcel of political economy, then they're not really yours in the end. That's that third synthesis of consumption. They come from elsewhere. You simply consume certain of those that you decide to make your own. Like I make my drive to quit smoking. I say, that's me. I'm quitting smoking, even though I'm smoking at the same time. There's another drive where I'm doing something that I'm saying I'm not doing. They're all coextensive. And interiority is is simply that moment where I take something that's coming from the exterior and I appropriate it for myself, and I say, that's mine. (laughs) That's me. That's my interiority. But I think Deleuze will say, it's always the exteriority of of relations. So that's probably my fault in in using uh, interiority, because I think at bottom, Deleuze takes up very seriously that phrase, Russell's phrase, relations are always exterior to their terms. And... uh, He's much more interested in exteriority, and I think interiority is a derivative of exteriority rather than, uh, than vice versa. Which is why he says we're, you know, we're interceptors of flows. The flows are exterior to us. They go beyond us. We simply consume them and make them our own at some point, or identify them as our own. But that's a secondary effect, so to speak, rather than a cause. You know, that makes sense. Of deriving everything from interiority. Uh, I have to think about that. Why would it be an error? Because what Deleuze wants to, you know, Deleuze is a philosopher of imminence. So his whole point in thinking about desire, I haven't talked much of this here, is to, to say what would an imminent movement of desire be? What would desire be if it's purely imminent? And um, we know what he thinks. Uh, A transcendent notion of desire would be, because even in Plato, in Hegel, in Freud, Lacan, he thinks this this persists, that if we desire something, it's different from need. If I have a need, I'm thirsty, so I drink water, that satisfies my need. But for all these people, these philosophers, desire something different from need. It's not simply something empirical that gets satisfied. It means, so ontologically, I'm lacking something in my very being. That's Lacan's notion of mont d'être. I'm lacking something in my very being, and I'm trying to fill it. I'm trying to uh, to find it. Um, in Plato, that's what the Republic is about. You need culture. You need the state to sort of get back to your being. Uh, Augustine has a very similar notion: the restlessness of the soul. Why are we restless? Why are we unsatisfied? It's because of desire. We lack something that we're trying to find. But that something is only going to be found in in God. And even in Hegel, in the section right after, you know the uh, Um, slave-master section in the phenomenology, there's a section of desire. In order to find our own desire, we at least have to go through the detour of going outside of ourselves into culture because we lack something, and then we come back and fill up our own desire. So any time you define desire and lack, there's some sort of element of transcendence. There's something transcendent that I'm lacking and that I'm trying to find. And then Deleuze says, but we can never find that transcendent something. Why? Precisely because it's transcendent. Now that's what Lacan says. It's a jouissance that's impossible. Like the object that desire wants, it can never get at. And so how does it fill its desire? Deleuze says, through acts of pleasure. But he says, pleasure is simply a kind of pseudo-imminence of desire. Like, I fulfill my desire in a pleasure... But then the process of desire starts up again. So he says horrible word. He says discharge in uh, Freud. <laughs> because we discharge our desire in a kind of pleasure that's a pseudo-imminence. It doesn't really satisfy desire because desire starts up again. And then we satisfy it in a pleasure. And, uh, but desire itself is this pure process operating underneath. And that's what Deloitte is, is trying to get at. Strip it of this reference to a transcendent object. So rather than saying desire lacks something that it can never get at, that's Lacan's point of view, desire is a pure process that's productive. It's constantly producing itself. And that's um, if there's a movement of exteriority, it's because every movement of desire is a production. You know, it's a production of something new. Uh, it's never a code that's pre-applied. Pre-app- uh, it's, it's a constant production of the new. There's an interesting essay where Deleuze um, uh, something a letter actually Deleuze sent to Foucault called Desire and Pleasure, and in that he's, he says that uh, Deleuze says last time I saw Michel, uh, he told me, you know, I sort of understand what you're doing with desire. He goes, but I, I just can't go that route. Anytime I think of desire, I think of lack, and so I can't, I can't do this desire thing. But pleasure, that I understand. So he writes book, The Use of Pleasure, and that's in that sense, Deleuze and Guattari, the exact opposite. Because then Deleuze goes on to say. You know, I understand what Michel's saying, but for me, when I heard the word pleasure, like I turn and run the other direction, right? Because pleasure is simply a false interruption of the movement of desire. It's a movement, It's an element of transcendence in what's pure uh, movement of desire. And I might say too, on um, Foucault and Deleuze, um, they're opposites in this sense. And Deleuze says this as well. Like the way Foucault started his trajectory philosophically, he begins with discourse and knowledge and movement from one epistemic formation to another. But then the problem is how you move from one epistemic formation to another, so he has to turn to the question of power. You know, it's because we have knowledge really translates power relations. Um, But then power seems ubiquitous. And then he, he gets to this other problem, well, how do you resist power? You know, how can you prevent power from just folding in on itself? And it's a big issue in Foucault. Everyone talks about resistance in Foucault. Deleuze says, I never had that problem. Like, for me, it's not a philosophical... I have other problems. But because I begin at the opposite end where Foucault began, I begin with flows. And a flow is always something that's moving and going in a different direction. So my problem wasn't resistance, because essentially I have resistance built in. My problem was, how do you stop the flows? How do you integrate them? How do you codify them? How do you stratify them? How do you stop them? Because that's what a state does. It wants to codify, control the flows. The I had built into my ontology, resistance from the start, because the fact is that the flows are like lava. It's going to ooze out somewhere, somehow, in some way. You can never completely control or codify the flows of desire. So he had a different set of problems, because Foucault begins with knowledge and power. He's asking, how do I resist these things? Deleuze begins with resistance, in a way. He begins with flows, and then he says, how do you stop the flows? How do states and social formations codify these flows of desire? So that's a philosophical difference. It's just simply how you organize and structure your philosophical concepts. But in a way, to answer your question, is it the same problem? I don't know. For him, it's exteriority. Desire is a pure process that's constantly moving outside of itself. And it's a problem. If you want to have a strong ego, you just interiorize. But that stops the flow of desire. We have our own little territory. And that's what he doesn't want.
2: Thank you. I'm wondering if you can say a little more about uh um, the time of schizophrenia. Um if, if 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 you could try to account for it as a sort of a floral investment because what what role is it playing this philosophy it as the creation of concept? In other words why is it sort
0: fortunate that they use schizophrenia for both these things, like schizophrenic as a clinical entity who's in a a hospital somewhere, and, and schizophrenia as a pure process. Because I think the clinical schizophrenic is for them simply an index of pointing to this idea of schizophrenia as a pure process. And they ask this question, given this pure process, what actually causes... Uh, the clinical schizophrenic and they, they cite a distinction that um Lang makes, was an anti sort of psychiatrist, between breakdown and breakthrough. You know, there is a pure process there, but it's the stoppage of that process that produces the um, the clinical schizophrenic. And so they try to give an account of how and why actual schizophrenia has as a kind of stoppage or breakdown of this pure process of which schizophrenia, as a clinical entity, is simply an index of. Like, they're pointing to this pure um, this pure process. So, for instance, I mean, this is the thing with schizophrenia. No one really knows what it is, still, even now. And when people give, when clinicians try to give an account of what schizophrenia is, it almost always is given in negative terms, in terms of things that break down the coherence of the ego. So they cite three, and it's like dissociation, like, they don't associate things correctly. They jump from one thing to another. It's never very clear. I'm my mother. I'm my father. I'm this. I'm that. People ask you your name. I'm Tom. I'm Bob. I'm this. I'm that. Which Deleuze says it's kind of pure decoding. Like, they don't follow the code. They go, what's your name? What's your identity? And they just shift from one thing to another at any point because they're not sort of susceptible uh, to, the, to the code. So it's a negative thing. They, their ego doesn't have an obvious identity. Or autism or catatonia is sort of... Uh, uh, sort of shutdown, is seen as a kind of negative thing, or loss of reality. This is often what's used to describe schizophrenia. they're somehow divorced from the real world. Deleuze and Gattari say, on all three of those accounts, schizophrenia is defined negatively because it seems to break down the nature of the ego. That's why it's negative. But they say if you take each of those three things positively, you get this idea of schizophrenia as a pure process. And in fact, lots of clinicians define it that way. That's the only way you can define schizophrenia as a process. It's dissociative because it links together elements, that is, the Lewis and Gattari will say, fragments that have no connection among themselves, whose only relationship is like this, is pure difference. So dissociation, far from being a negative thing, is a positive thing. (laughs) They're differential philosophers, like right? They link together things that have no communication among themselves. Same thing with catatonia, or autism. Now, we use autism slightly differently now, but they use it in an old sense in this book. Um, it's a bad word, they say, for designating the body without organs, which is a positive thing, and they say has a, has, has a positive function. And then loss of reality. How can you say schizophrenics have lost touch with reality when they have this um, sort of intensive state you know, these intensive states that they experience at this almost unbearable level. It's almost as if they're in touch with reality more than us, but it simply becomes unbearable, and they find ways to avoid having that contact with reality. So this is sort of what they try to do, take these clinical notions of what schizophrenia is. Yes, uh, dissociative. Yes, kind of catatonic state. Yes, um, loss of reality. But say, those are actually... Positive descriptions. If you take that away from the notion of an ego that's losing its coordinates, and say this is the pure process that underlies it, yes, it's dissociative because it links together things that have no identity of their own. It's not really loss of reality in the sense that it's in touch with a reality that's almost unbearable, and so forth and so on. So that's that's what they try to do with schizophrenia. Say that the clinical schizophrenic is someone in whom this process has been stopped. And broken. Like the doc they go to the doctor and they say, No, your name is Bob. <laughs> and they force this kind of these codes and this constraint upon them. And the schizophrenic is someone who's moving around a lot and finds themselves kind of trapped and coded because the process has been stopped. So I don't know if that helps answer your question, but it's a complicated issue. And actually they never talk about schizophrenia ever again in uh, A Thousand Plateaus. They do it in this book and then it's gone. Okay. Maybe huh?
1: one quick, quick question. Uh, I don't want to hear question uh, is. about uh, economic and capitalism, I was just wondering, well, you all the key of the analysis of the community and, um, because we see the history of the fall, and that is, but the same, we always have had flows, like the flows, in case of record the case of uh, real capital, like <coughs> STD, versus the of the others, but, but over the flows. The open, in terms of flows. <coughs> and now, we also have things thing where, the or, since real, uh, a marginate resolution, large that can to flows. And we really are because we can uh, ask the capital for uh control regarders, it's like gonna anyway control ground flows, it cannot really control capital. it's gonna control the movement of capital, because we don't really have a capital system in capital. We have centralized information and just flows. We cannot control, but more or less direct and control, the hand more visible place. So
0: well, I think you answered it in the question. I mean, that's Deleuze's uh, take Marx says you can reinterpret past history from the point of view of capital, but he doesn't have this notion of flow, which is a much more you know, Keynesian uh, notion in economics. So you're right, it's just everywhere in economics, and everyone in economics, you try to control the flow, but it's not easy to control these so, so that's just Deleuze's starting point. He takes. So I think everything you said is exactly right. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but he's, that's, why, that's why I'm trying to answer the question. Why does he say flows? A general, the theory of society is a generalized theory of flows, both in capitalism and elsewhere. It's simply because that's where we find ourselves now. Like there's monetary flows, flows of population, this and that. He's going to take a model from economics, but generalize it philosophically, and say the theory of society is a generalized theory of flows, how we code flows, how we try to code them, why we have this fear of a decoded flow, because a decoded flow is going to explode You know, the nature of the social formation in which we find ourselves. Something... Fallujah's term is a line of flight, something escapes, it's like the lava, and then you have to find a way to code that, (laughs) a new way to axiomatize that. So that's his his model. But you're right that the model comes from our contemporary situation, where, where everything is truly monetary flows and flows of population and so forth and so on, and they simply read that backwards. So I think he's just taking the discourse of economics and saying, that's true when we think about it philosophically and saying that's the problem we all have to face. It comes from economics, but it's a generalized problem that we can take out of economics, you know, and use schizophrenia as a model. So that's how we can start bringing together something like capitalism and schizophrenia, economics and psychology. Yes. Unfortunately
1: we have run out of time and Paul please join me to try to